This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please take your copy of the scripture and turn to the book of Mark chapter 10. As you do, you will look in verse 45 and there we read these words. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Then it speaks of the extent of the atonement and to give his life a ransom for many. Today I'm, trying, I'm going to try to convince you that the doctrine of limited atonement is scripturally accurate, logically consistent, and true. We are in the middle of a five-point series here at North Shore Baptist Church. Today is week three in this series. Uh, the series is on the Doctrines of Grace, also known as Reformed Soteriology or the Five Points of Calvinism. Um, I have provided a sheet in the bulletin for you, which has most of the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, and you can follow along in that way. Or if you have really quick fingers, you can follow along by turning in the pages of your Bible. But whatever the case may be, we're going to uh, be looking at the Doctrine of Limited Atonement. But before we do... We certainly need the grace of the Lord, so let's bow before him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for another Lord's Day that we can come and worship. We thank you, Lord, for the songs that have been sung. Lord, we thank you for the prayers that have been offered. Now, Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray for myself as I preach the word this morning that you would be with me. Lord, first of all, I would ask that you would be with me so that as I present the word this morning concerning the doctrines of grace, that I would do so in a way that is gracious. And I pray, dear Lord, that there would be a clarity in my speech and in my thought. I pray, dear God, that I would be accurate in the way that I represent you and your Son. And Father, I pray for the people that they will have ears to hear. Uh, I pray, naturally speaking, Lord, that you would give them an attentiveness to the Word where they would be desirous to learn and to grow. Lord, even above that, we pray, Lord, that you would give them hearts that are soft And so, Lord, with their attentiveness, Lord, there would be a desire to do what you are calling them to do. I pray, dear Lord, that if there would be anything that I would present this morning that would not be from you, I pray that it would be quickly forgotten. But, Lord, if this is your word, if this is your truth, Lord, I pray that it would be implanted deep into the ears and the hearts of these people. And I pray, dear Lord, that this would be done for your glory. I pray that in this, which is the heart of the gospel, that we would begin to see that the gospel is of first importance and at the heart of the gospel is the cross. And Father, I also pray that as I preach up here this morning that the power of the Holy Spirit would be with me. Lord, that I would not stand alone. Uh, Lord, because I desperately need you. I desperately need you. And so I call out to you and I ask for your divine assistance as the word is presented this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Roman numeral one, Calvinists and Arminians, or non-Calvinists, agree on atonement. You know, there are a lot of things that we disagree about with respect to salvation. And we're going to get into a lot of that today. But before we look at what we disagree on, there's something very important 
with which we totally agree. And that is that Christianity is separate from all other religions in the world in that Christians believe that they will inherit eternal life based upon the work of someone else other than themselves. And they believe that that work is that someone died upon a cross for their sins and that that person rose from the dead. And every Christian believes that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the one who died in their place for their sins. Every Christian, whether Arminian or Calvinist, believes that his one-time death was sufficient for them, and every Christian believes that his death is the only means by which they can be saved. Every Christian believes that we are not saved by our good works and that our good works do not contribute in any way to our right standing before God. Every Christian believes that his death in their place was necessary and that it was sufficient. And that if he did not die for them, there would be no possible way that they could atone for their own sins and therefore they would not be in heaven. Calvinists and Arminians alike believe that. They believe that if Christ didn't die for you, you will be in hell. We all agree on substitutionary atonement. The difference lies not in the fact that Jesus dies for, died for sinners, but the difference lies in the question which we are going to try to answer in Roman numeral 2, for whom did Christ die? A Calvinist will say that Christ died for the elect, for the ones that God chose, and those are the only ones that he died for. Arminians will say that he died for all people without exception from all time. Let's allow scripture to answer the question and let's go through this rather lengthy list of verses and just answer the question, for whom did Christ die? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For whom did Christ die? He died for the world. 1 John 2.2, 2. And he himself is the propitiation, and I'll be using that word propitiation throughout the sermon. Uh, it simply means an atoning sacrifice, which is an appeasement of the wrath of God. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. For whom did Christ die? He died for the whole world. 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself a ransom for all. For whom did Christ die? He died for all. John the Baptist was speaking in John 1.29, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. For whom did Christ die? He died for the world. Isaiah 53.6, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For whom did Christ die? He died for us all. Ephesians 5.25, Paul tells husbands to love their wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. For whom did Christ die? He died for the church. John 10.11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. For whom did Christ die? He died for his sheep. John 15.13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And then he follows by saying, you are my friends. For whom did Christ die? He died for his friends. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. For whom did Christ die? He died for many. Our scripture reading this morning, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. For whom did Christ die? For many. Matthew 1, 21. And she, the Virgin Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
For whom did Christ die? He died for his people. Acts 20, 28, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders and he tells them to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For whom did Christ die? He died for the church of God. Isaiah 53, 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. For whom did Christ die? For many. The next verse, 53, 12, and he bore the sin of many. For whom did Christ die? For many. Luke 1, 68, he has visited and redeemed his people. Who did Christ redeem? For whom did Christ die? His people. Now, as we look at those verses, as we look at these verses, understand again that the Calvinistic position is that man is totally depraved, that he is unable and unwilling to come to God for salvation left to himself, but that God, who is rich in mercy for reasons only known to himself before time began, chose to save certain individuals based upon the good pleasure of his will. And it logically follows, and I'm going to try to demonstrate that it scripturally follows, that Jesus died for these people and for these people only. But you might ask the question, do Calvinists really believe the Bible? And the reason you might ask that question is because there are verses here which say that he died for all and that he died for the world. And if we're saying that he only died for the elect or for the chosen ones, how can that be consistent? It doesn't appear to make sense on the surface. There appears to be a contradiction. You see, he either died in place of everybody in the world or he didn't. And the argument that the Arminian or non-Calvinist will make is that if he died for everybody without exception, then you can't say that he only died for the elect. And since the Bible says he died for every person in the world without exception, therefore limited atonement can't be true. That sounds reasonable, but there's one problem. And that is that the Bible does not say that he died for every person in the world without exception, and Calvinists do not say that he died for every person in the world without exception. The Bible does not state that, nor does it imply it. The Bible says that Jesus died for the world and that he died for all. And there's a difference between using those two words and saying every person in the world without exception. We're going to get to that later when I get to point number five. But for right now, hang on to that thought and move with me, please, um, through this consideration of why I have presented all of these verses. Some would say world, some would say all, some would say many, some would say the church. Here's why. The reason I do this is to demonstrate that we cannot arrive at our conclusion by seeing who can come up with the greatest number of verses. The Calvinist will have his gun over here and he will fire at the Arminian and he will say, the Bible clearly says that Jesus died for the church. And the Arminian will stand over here and will say, no, the Bible clearly says he died for all. And the Calvinist will fire back and say, no, the Bible clearly says he didn't die for everybody, but he died for many. And the Arminian will stand over here and will say, no, he tasted death for every man. He died for the world. And so we fire shots back and forth at one another. If we do that to see who can stockpile the greatest number of verses, we're actually defeating ourselves. Because what we are doing, if we make that the argument in answering the question, for whom did Christ die, we are proving that the Bible contradicts itself and that the Bible is not true and that it's saying on the one hand that he died for everyone without exception and on the other hand that he died for the elect. Thus, it is depreciating the value of the Bible and inerrancy and infallibility. You see, I believe 
that we can't arrive at the question that way. Um, because Scripture does not contradict itself, and I'm going to demonstrate again when we get to Roman numeral 5 why that is true, but for now, suffice, suffice it to say that we cannot answer the question for whom did Christ die simply by reading English words in fragments out of context. So how then do we answer the question for whom did Christ die? Well, flip your sheet over and I would like to show you the three different views of the atonement. Three different views of the atonement. First of all, there is the view of universal atonement. Uh, this is the Arminian or non-Calvinistic position. This is the position that is held by most evangelicals today. If this is what you believe, you are in the majority today in the year 2010. And here's what it states. That Christ died equally for all men, but that he died for no one in particular, but that he died for everyone in general. He died in place of those who will be in heaven in the same way that he died for those who will perish in hell. The words all and world in their estimation refer to everybody in the world without exception. That he died for Pharaoh and Esau and Judas and Hitler in the same way that he died for Peter and James and John and you and me. Now, most of the evangelical Christians in the world as I said, believe this position and espouse this. So if you believe this, you are not your own. An illustration which they will use to prove their point is from U.S. history. Uh, President Andrew Jackson once offered a pardon to an individual who did not wish to be pardoned. Now, the Supreme Court ruled upon this, and uh, the Supreme Court said that the president may issue a pardon but the pardon may never be imposed upon an individual. And in the same way, those who hold to universal atonement will say that God offers a pardon to everybody, that Jesus died for everybody, and it's up to you whether or not you will accept the gift. That is general atonement or universal atonement, Arminianism or non-Calvinism. That's their position. There's a second position, and it's called universalism. And here's the argument of the universalist. It says that since Jesus died for everybody, therefore everybody's sins are paid for, and therefore everyone without exception will be in heaven and hell will be empty. We're all going to heaven because Jesus died for everybody. Now this position is logically very consistent because if Jesus died for all, that is for everyone, and their sins were actually paid for at the cross, and I'm going to demonstrate in a moment, that Jesus did actually pay for sins at the cross. If that's the case, then it logically concludes, is the logical conclusion is that everyone will be in heaven. The problem with this, though, is that it has a faulty premise. Scripture does not teach that Jesus died for every person without exception. And by the way, I have not proven that yet, but I'm going to. But that's part of their faulty premise. And the other part of the problem with universalism is this. Scripture indeed teaches that hell will be inhabited. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So for now, based on scripture and based on logic, we can dismiss universalism. Which brings us to the third position, and this is the position that I hold, this is the position that Calvinists hold, and that is the position of limited atonement or particular redemption which says that Christ died only in place of the elect, the ones that God cho chose to save. Now, 
Let me, before we get into what this position is, let me define the terms. Because the word limited is bothersome to some people. They prefer to call it definite atonement or particular redemption. And that's fine. Whatever you call it, it it really doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, it's very important that you see that in some way there is a limitation. Uh, Let me clarify. When we use the word limited, we are not saying that the atonement is limited in terms of its power to save. Not at all. It, It is unlimited. It does not mean that that Christ hung upon the cross for a certain amount of time in order to pay for a certain amount of people, and that if he wanted to pay for more people, he would have had to have hung on the cross longer or suffered more, or that if he wanted to pay for less, he would have been on the cross for um, a shorter period of time. That's not what the word limited means at all. Limited has to do with the scope. For whom was the death of Christ intended, and for whom was the death of Christ efficacious or effectual? And you see, unless you are a universalist, everybody, everybody believes in limited atonement. You say, Pastor, there's some things I know, and there's one thing I know. I know I don't believe in limited atonement. Well, you may not believe it in the same way that I believe it, but unless you are a universalist who believes that everybody will be in heaven, you, in one sense, believe that the atonement is limited. You see, Arminians or non-Calvinists believe that the atonement is limited by us. We limit the atonement by not believing. The Calvinist believes that the atonement is limited by God in that Christ only died for the elect. But every non-universalist believes that the atonement has some limitation. It's just a matter of who does the limiting. But be that as it may... Before I demonstrate scripturally in point number four why I believe limited atonement is true, let me dispel general atonement logically. Now, before I get into this, let me say, we do not derive our doctrine from logic at all. We derive our doctrine from scripture. However, once our doctrine is derived, it is able to withstand the scrutiny of a logical examination. And what I'm about to give you is not something which I first articulated or came up with on my own. This is something which was uh, brought by the English Puritan John Owen. And um, we're going to take a look at this. Here's the way that Owen presented the atonement logically. He started off by saying there are three possibilities concerning the death of Christ. First possibility is that Christ underwent the pains of hell on the cross for either, number one, all the sins of all men, or number two, he died for all of the sins of some men, or number three, he died for some of the sins of all men. Those are our possibilities. Now, which one of those is is accurate? If we go to number three and and we say that he died for some of the sins of all men, then would you not agree that all men, without exception, will have at least some sins that were not paid for? And since they would have some sins that are not paid for, this would mean that everybody in the world, without exception, would be in hell because everybody would have unpaid sins. Okay? Seems like a very ludicrous position, but but hang on to it for a second. If we move up to number two, and we say that Christ died for all of the sins of some men, well, then you would be right. Uh, But I haven't proven that yet. We'll get on to that 
in a while. But if we say number one, and again, this is not, this is not so that we will prove limited atonement. The purpose of this is to disprove number one, general atonement. If we say that number one is true, that all of the sins of all men have been paid for, then we have to ask this question, and the question is this. Upon what basis, then, does God send anyone to hell if all sins of all men were paid for? You understand the question. You're, you're standing before God to be judged. He is ready to dismiss you into the abyss. And you say, I have one question. My question is this. What is the basis of you sending me to hell, because Jesus has paid for all of my sins. How can you send me to hell if my sins are paid for? And the answer, which will most frequently be given, as people listen to this scenario, they will say this. The reason people go to hell is because of unbelief. Well, all right, let's say that that is the reason that one goes to hell. If one goes to hell because of unbelief, then the question needs to be asked, is unbelief a sin? And the answer is, absolutely, unbelief is a sin. And if unbelief is not a sin, why would God damn us and send us to hell for something which is not a sin? And if unbelief is a sin, did Christ not die for our unbelief in the same way that he died for our lying and our stealing and our lust? And if he did not die for our unbelief, then our unbelief is one of the sins which is yet unpaid for. And if he didn't pay for our unbelief, then all people will be in hell. Now, all that is to say, logically, it doesn't stand to reason that Christ died for all people who will be in hell. Therefore, universal atonement, I believe, can be dismissed logically, which leaves us with one option, logically, and that is the option of limited atonement. But, as we move on to point number four, let me state again that we do not derive doctrine from logic. Doctrine is derived from scripture. But, when a doctrine is derived, it can withstand the scrutiny of logic. And this brings us to the most important point today, and that is, how do we demonstrate from Scripture that Christ died only for his elect? And the key to this, and the key to this is in answering this question. What does it mean to die for someone? When we say that Christ died for our sins, what does that mean? What did Christ actually accomplish when he died? Did he actually pay for our sins or did he make provision for our sins so that they might be paid for? And there is a big difference. You say, what's the difference? It all comes out the same in the end. No, it doesn't come out the same in the end. Listen to the question. Answer the question in your heart and in your mind using scripture. Did Christ actually pay for our sins or did he die so that provision might be made for our sins? And how do we arrive at the answer? We arrive at the answer by looking at what Scripture itself says concerning the death of Christ. <clears throat> Let's start with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. When he had by himself purged or cleansed or washed our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's the question. Were those sins purged when he died? 
Or were those sins purged when we believed? Clearly, according to Hebrews 1.3, those sins were purged when he died. Here's another one. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, past tense, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Did Christ become a curse for us when we believed, or did Christ become a curse for us and redeem us from the curse of the law when he hung upon the tree? Clearly, it was when he died. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Were we reconciled to God through the death of his son? Clearly, it was at the death of his son that we were reconciled. Romans 3.25. Whom God set forth to be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, an appeasement of his own wrath, Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation, how? By our belief. No, by his blood. It was at the cross that the wrath of God was propitiated. And then, and then 1 Corinthians 15.3 says it all. Christ died for our sins, for all of them. What he completes is completely done. He paid for them in full. Now, this may be obvious. This may seem very elementary, um, but try to understand what I am doing and why I'm belaboring the point. The non-Calvinistic or Arminian position of the doctrine of the atonement says that Christ died equally for all men and that he, and that he put them in a position which they are now savable. And they like to use this illustration. And the reason I know that they like to use this illustration is because I, when I was one of them, used to use this illustration. And that is, say that there is a venue, maybe a, a, a sporting event or a concert. And we give the gospel message and we say it is sort of like this. He purchased a ticket for everyone. But only those who show up at the venue and pick up their tickets and enter will actually see the concert. Now, on the surface, this may seem like a very sound explanation. But when you look at the Bible and you see the way that Holy Scripture describes the death of Christ, he never once, brothers and sisters, he never once puts the death of Christ in terms of a possibility or a contingency, nor do the results ever vary based upon our response. You see, he either actually was a substitute or he was a potential substitute, but it can't be both. Let me say that again. He either actually was a substitute, died for our sins and paid for our sins, or else he was a potential substitute where our sins might be paid for depending upon how we act upon it, but it can't be both. And if you want to take the non-Calvinistic Arminian universal atonement position, then what you have to do, and I'm not saying this um, um, sarcastically, I'm not saying this rhetorically, I, I'm, I'm really saying, let's see what the Bible says. If you want to take the position that Jesus died for everybody without exception, and that he paid for all of the sins of all people of all time, then what you have to do is you have to demonstrate from Scripture that his death was in some way potential and not actual nor efficacious. Did he actually propitiate the wrath of God for sinners or did he potentially do it? Did he actually reconcile us or did he potentially reconcile us? 
Did he actually redeem us or did he potentially redeem us? Did he actually purge us or did he potentially purge us? Look at the paragraph that's been written there in italics. I think that sums it up. If one, and this one is the Arminian non-Calvinist who believes in universal atonement, if one says that Christ didn't actually reconcile, redeem, purge, or die for anyone, he only made it possible for them to be reconciled, redeemed, and purged, etc., then what this person must do is they must prove their point by producing at least one Bible verse referring to Christ's death in terms of potential, possibility, opportunity, or contingency. They're not going to be able to come up with that verse. The reason why is because the Bible teaches that redemption was fully accomplished, past tense, in the death of Christ. Let me simplify it. The verb tenses, redeem, purge, so forth and so on, when referring to what was accomplished on the cross always are in the past tense describing a completed action. You say, so what? Well, here's the so what. If he purged the sins of every person who ever lived without exception at the cross, then would you not agree that their sins are purged? And if it's true that their sins are purged, then every person without exception will be in heaven. You see, according to Holy Scripture... The death of Jesus Christ did not create a chance for everyone to be saved. It actually accomplished redemption for all whom God elected. Every sin is going to be paid for. I'll put it another way. God is holy and God is just. Every sin will be paid for. Either Jesus paid for that sin on the cross or you will pay for it yourself in hell, but it's all going to be paid for once. It's not going to be paid for twice. You're lying, you're stealing, you're cheating, your lust, your unbelief, paid for by Jesus on the cross, and then you go to hell and pay for your lying and your stealing and your cheating and your unbelief. It's not going to be paid for twice. You'll either pay for it or Christ paid for it. Well, To sum up point number four, which is the main point, what the Bible itself says about the death of Christ is the clearest, soundest argument for limited atonement. But that's the way I see it. And heaven knows I am often wrong. If you don't believe me, speak to my family. I am often wrong. And maybe you see it differently. And maybe... I did an exceptionally poor job of demonstrating this argument. And maybe it was just so boring, or maybe it was so discombobulated, or maybe it's so warm in here, you were not able to follow the argument of Roman numeral four. Or maybe, let's just say I did a good job of presenting it, but regardless, you are still unconvinced because you are sitting there and you're going to say to yourself, listen, whether I can figure this thing out or not, All I know is that the Bible is the Bible and the Bible is the word of God and the Bible is true. And the Bible says he died for all and all means all and that means everybody and that's good enough for me. And the Bible is the Bible and the Bible is the word of God and the Bible says that he died for the whole world and the whole world's the whole world. And that means everybody and that's good enough for me. So don't try to give me that slick talk with all that logic up there of this means that, then that means that. Look, says he died for the whole world, says he died for all. That's it. That settles it for me. Well, 
<clears throat> you may anticipate that I will be critical of a person that has that attitude. But on the contrary, I have a great deal of respect and I can not only sympathize with, but I admire someone that takes such a position. And here's why. Because essentially what that person is saying is, I have faith. And I may not understand it all, but if God said it, I believe it, and that's the end of it. The reason I admire that is because at some point, we all need to do that. I mean, let's look at creation. Have, have you completely figured that one out yet? Did you know, but could, if you do, please get with me immediately. I would love to know how it all worked. But at the end of the day, when we look around at one another and the mountains and the trees and the planets, the only thing that we can say is, Oh Lord, my God, how great thou art. We understand that the world were framed through things which are not, that he spoke the world into existence. How did he do that? I don't know. I have not been able to figure that one out yet. So, do you accept it? Yes. How do you accept it? Well, I accept it because the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that's how I explain it. So I admire the person that looks at the Bible and says, I, I don't get it, but I know what it says, and that's what I believe. However, as much as I admire the humility and the conviction and the sincerity and the faith of the Arminian or the non-Calvinist to believe God's word that Jesus died for everybody and that's the end of the discussion. At the same time, I find these people, and they are dearly beloved brethren, I find them to be somewhat misinformed as to what the Bible actually says. And I find them to be very misled as to what the Bible actually means. First of all, the Word of God, the Bible, never says that Jesus died for everyone without exception. The Bible never says in every place that Jesus died for every person in the world. The Bible uses the words world and all and whole world and every man. Now, let's define the words world and all. How does Scripture itself use these words? Let's look, first of all, this is Roman numeral 5, John chapter 12, verse 19. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, if we're going to be consistent and say that the word world means everybody in the world can it be applied in this case? Obviously it cannot because they themselves were not going after him. You can't do that with the word world. In John chapter 1, the word world is used three times in one verse and it means three different things in that one verse. He was in the world, the world was made by him, but the world did not know him. He was in every person in the world without exception. He made every person in the world without exception, but every person in the world without exception did not know him. Obviously, that's not what it means. You can't use that word in that way. Here's another one. John 16, 20. Jesus speaking to his apostles. Most assuredly, I say to you that you, my disciples, will weep and lament, but every person in the world except for you will rejoice. 
And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. No, it doesn't mean that. It means the system of this world or those that are outside of the kingdom of God. That's what the word world means there. Romans 1.8, does the word world mean everybody in the world? Does, do the words whole world mean everybody in the world without exception? Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that you, the church of Rome, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Amazing. The Native Americans that were roaming around in what one day would be Wyoming were sketching pictures of buffalo on canvas and they were talking about the faith of the Christians in Rome. No, they weren't. Whole world does not mean every person in the world without exception. It means the Roman world or the known world. You can't take the word and be consistent for it to mean every person in the world without exception. How about all? Speaking of John the Baptist, Mark 1.5, then all the land of Judea, and those from Jerusalem went out to him, to John the Baptist, went out to him and were all, without exception, baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This is amazing. Does this mean that Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas, the Pharisees, that they were all baptized by John? Obviously not. Luke 2.1. Picture the Christmas play, the little child with the bathrobe on and the bandana around his head, walking up front and standing there and someone's going to read this verse. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed or registered. No wonder Joseph and Mary couldn't find a hotel room in Bethlehem if everybody in the entire planet was having to come back. All there obviously does not mean everybody in the world without exception. You say, well, why are you Why are you doing this? I'm doing this to demonstrate that Scripture, when it interprets Scripture, does not use the words world and all to mean everybody in the world without exception. And we use phrases like this all the time, don't we? I just used the word world. I've just used the word all. But I didn't literally mean that we use phrases like this all the time as if to say we never use phrases other than this. But don't we use phrases like this all the time? Were you at the party? Yes, I was at the party. Who was there? Everybody. Listen, next time you go to the party, make sure you apprehend Osama bin Laden. Everybody doesn't mean everybody. So then why do the authors of Scripture use words like world and all if they don't mean everybody without exception? What is their intention? And I think that's pretty simple to answer. They're using the word world to refer to everybody in the world without distinction, not with everybody in the world without exception. The reason why is because in the Jewish mind, they were God's chosen people. And they were the only ones for whom the Messiah came. And they thought that they were the only ones who would be saved. That's the meaning of John 3.16. There was a man by the name of Nicodemus. The same came to Jesus at night. He was a ruler of the Jews. Not just a Jew. Not just a Pharisee. But a ruler of the Jews. In the Sanhedrin, he comes to Jesus. 
And what does Jesus say to him? Nicodemus, you Jew among the Jews, I've got news for you. For God so loved the world, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, that he gave his only begotten son, and that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But someone might be sitting here this morning and saying, ah, but sometimes the word all does mean all. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Now, does that just mean large numbers of people? No, it means everybody. All does mean everybody sometimes. But if you choose to believe that the word all refers to everybody without exception with respect to the atonement, then you're going to have to go back up to Roman numeral 4 and then you also must be willing to say that Jesus actually purged the sins of every man and that he reconciled every man and that he redeemed every man and that he propitiated the wrath of God for every man. And if you're ready to confess that, then by definition you are a universalist and everybody will be in heaven. And I don't think any Bible-believing Christian is ready to do that. Which brings us to our last point this morning, and that is the major objection that we hear to the doctrine of limited atonement, and that is that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. <clears throat> if I've heard that objection once, quite literally, I've heard it 200 times. Maybe more, probably more. And the verse is taken from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. First of all, if someone brings that objection to you, ask them if they know where that verse is found. 90% of the time, they will not be able to tell you where it's found. But it's not so important that they know the address. Ask them to quote the verse in its entirety. Give the whole verse, and then give some context to it. What does it mean? It's found in 2 Peter 3.9, and look at the verse in its entirety. You don't need really any more context than this to know who the verse is addressing. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering or patient toward us. Who is, I don't know if this is proper grammar, who is the us that is referred to here? You go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and you see that it is written to Christians, those who will obtain like precious faith. So he is not wanting any of us or not willing that any of us should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. How do we apply the doctrine of limited atonement? Well, I have five points of application and then we will close. First of all, here's application point number one. The doctrine of limited atonement should make us very eager to spread the gospel around the world, particularly as it relates to foreign missions. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Here's a redemption verse. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying... Of the Lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by our belief, no, by your blood, there's that redemption connected with the death of Christ, it's past tense, have redeemed us to God by your blood, look at those next two words, out of 
every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It does not say that he redeemed every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It says that out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, people have been redeemed. What does this have to do with world missions? Here's what it has to do with world missions. When a missionary goes to a place and the missionary is frustrated and he's preaching the gospel to these people, people that have never heard the name of Jesus, and he says, I, I don't, I'm going to quit. I just have to quit. There's, I'm not getting anywhere. But these people are just like stone. Their hearts are like rocks. Will this word ever penetrate these people? Keep preaching the gospel. Because there's somebody in there, hopefully a lot of people in there, even as Paul was told, I have many people in this city who are going to be saved. So keep preaching the gospel because out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, there will be people around the throne of God praising Him forever. Limited atonement should spark us and give us confidence even when we're speaking to people in English about the gospel of Jesus Christ because we know that if Christ died for those people... God has elected those people and those people will come. Their sins are purged. They've been purged at the cross and now the application of that is in their faith and faith will be given to those who are God's elect and Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Therefore, go and tell everybody with confidence that Jesus died for sinners, which ties into application point number two and it's a bit of a nuance, but but I think we should try to be as accurate as we can. And that is, when speaking to the unsaved, you should try to avoid the phrase, and the reason you should try to avoid this phrase is because it's not found in Scripture. When speaking to the unsaved, do not say to them, Jesus died for you, because we don't know that he did. Uh, The apostles never preached that in their evangelistic messages. Rather, what I would say and what I do say to sinners is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. Everyone who believes will not perish but have everlasting life. He died for sinners like you and me. A bit of a nuance, but still, the reason why uh, we want to do that is we want to be accurate and we want to be true to Scripture. Here's a third one, and this is for those of us that are saved. Knowing that Jesus died for you specifically should make you so much more joyful and thankful than you are right now. If it makes you proud, and here's the problem. This is not the problem with Calvinism. This is the problem with Calvinists. Calvinists tend to or can be arrogant and proud people. And that is such a contradiction because above all people, we should be the ones who fall on our faces before God and say, I have no idea why you chose me. But Jesus, I want to thank you that you, God, I want to thank you that you did. And Jesus, I want to thank you that you died for me. And knowing that he died for you specifically should make you love him all the more. Let's say this morning before I came to church, I went to the mini mart and I took my wallet out and I bought every bouquet of flowers that they had in the entire mini-mart. I brought them all. And as every lady came up to the church that this morning, 
I handed you all a bouquet of flowers and said, here you go. Thank you. You are special. You're special. Thank you. God bless you. And gave everybody one. I'm sure that, number one, the flowers would be beautiful. And number two, you would say, what a nice gesture. I think number three, you would be in some way thankful. But if I go to the Mini Mart and I buy a bouquet of flowers and I give it specifically to my wife, I am making a statement and I am saying, you are the one. You are the one. You see, when we believe in general atonement, that Jesus just died for sinners and that, yes, he died for you. Yes, he died for me. But he, died, he, died, he died for everybody. So in what way you know, is that in any way special? But when you think about your sin, your specific sin, the weight of your specific sin, the guilt of your specific sin, the horror of your specific sin, the wrath that your specific sin would bring upon you throughout eternity, what you yourself have done, when you think about that, and then you think about Jesus going to the cross, and he's going to the cross with that specific record, with you specifically on his mind, as the old gospel hymn used to, we used to sing, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. When you think about the specific nature of you and your sin and him dying for you in your place, it is so much more special than Jesus just pulling out a, a, a roller and just covering everybody. It was for you that he died if you are of the elect. <clears throat> Number four. <clears throat> never, never, ever, 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 under any circumstances, ask this question. What if Jesus didn't die for me? The reason you should not ask that question is because that is not emphasized in Scripture. The Scripture says your emphasis should be on belief, that whoever believes in him will not perish. Well, how do I know if I'm one of the elect, or how do I know if Jesus died for me? We are never called to question that at all. There is one sure way, however, to know, and that is this. <clears throat> Come to Jesus Christ for salvation, and you will know that you are of the elect. Because Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one that comes to me I will never turn away. In other words, if you're listening to this today, and you are not saved, you're not born again, and you're thinking, man, I am in trouble now, and I'm in deep trouble if Jesus didn't pay for my sins on the cross, and you come to Jesus and you say, is there room at the cross for me? Did, did you die for me? Did, did, may I come to you? Will you accept me? Will you forgive me? And Jesus stands there with his arms folded and says, um, I'd like to help you. But according to my records, on Mount Calvary, you weren't covered, but I appreciate the gesture, but burn in hell. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the emphasis of Scripture. The Bible says that when he was a great way off, his father got up and he ran to him and he kissed him and he hugged him, and he washed his feet, and he gave him a robe, and he gave him a ring, and he gave him a party. 
God is more willing to save you today than you are willing to be saved. Come to Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So never sit and play the game. Well, what if He died for me? What if He didn't? At the outset, we said that all Christians, all Christians believe in atonement. You need that atonement. You need to be born again. You need to be saved. And here's the final point of application. And this is the one which is of most practical value to me personally. And this has to do with the doctrine of assurance. I am not particularly proud of this, but I am glad for the sake of other believers that I went through this. And that is that even when I was in the ministry, back from about the mid-80s to the mid-90s, I went through about an eight or nine year period where I doubted my own salvation. I mean, good grief, how can you be a pastor of a church and you don't know for sure whether or not you're saved? How can you tell other people to be sure when you yourself aren't sure? Believe me, it has its challenges. It has its challenges when you wake up in the middle of the night and you say, what if I didn't believe enough? What if I haven't repented enough? When I look at the mirror of my life and I see the things that I've done and then I look at the Word of God and I say, oh my goodness, there's no way you're saved. Then I look into the real problem, which is the mirror of my soul and I just catch a glimpse of it. I can't see the whole thing because it's so deceptive. But my goodness, the things that I think There's no way that I could possibly be saved. Here's how the doctrine of limited atonement gave me an assurance of salvation. Back in 1994, I was speaking to a former member of this church. He since has moved to New Jersey. Dear brother in the Lord, used to play piano here. Loved the Lord, loved evangelism. Very soft-spoken gentleman from Jamaica. His name was Ed. And I said, Ed, I've got to be honest with you. This is just killing me. I said, I am struggling with whether or not I am a true child of God. And he said these very simple words, which changed my life forever. He said, if Jesus died for me, I know that I will be in heaven. Or, as we sang this morning, what he completes is completely done. And I said to myself, I believe he died for me. And I am trusting him. And it was at that moment the clouds rolled away. And there was a clarity in my heart. Now, do I still experience the depths of my sin and And am I disgusted with it? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, I am no longer looking at me. I am looking at the fact that he died on that cross, that he did pay for my sins. He promises that if I believe, I will not perish. I believe, and that's it. That's a case where I don't understand it, but I sure accept it, and I sure believe in it. So I'm resting on the finished work of Christ. Are you trusting in that? I'd like us to sing a hymn before we take the offering this morning. And that hymn is hymn number 146. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe.
Would you take your hymn books, please, and stand with me? And can we sing this hymn together? Hymn number 146. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.